so even my spectacles, I call them my spectacles, they aren't really mine. They're offered by one of the people in front of me. And it, because you offered it to me, it's always your job to keep them clean. <laughs> Some little things people can do, which is wonderful. Excellent. So today is a nice opportunity to give a talk on something or other. As usual, I haven't decided yet. This is the time when my mind starts to make the choice of what to talk about this evening. And some of you are coming in, some of you are going out. So hopefully I can give a nice inspiring talk so more people come in than go out. <laughs> Otherwise I might get the sack. You know, I think you can often know that those of you who've been here a long time and just know the monks, the nuns who come and speak here, we never take ourselves so seriously. Many years ago, when I started giving popular talks and many people kept on coming to hear them, straight away I thought, this is very dangerous. You know, for someone on a spiritual path, you may start to feel like proud and egotistical. And then it occurred to me, there was one really important time when I was giving some talks in Singapore. And when I started giving these talks, it was arranged in this big auditorium in Suntec City Convention Center in the middle of Singapore. And to get enough people to listen, they even put advertising on the back of buses in Singapore. And I couldn't resist the chance of just making the joke. Many people once said that I've got a face like the back of a bus. And now that was actually true. <laughs> so you don't take yourself that seriously. But I did take the, the dangers of giving a talk very seriously. Because you know, each one of you have come such a long distance actually to get here this evening. You know, many of you have been working today and maybe haven't had any, lunch, any dinner yet. Or just hoping to get some dinner when you go back. And it's a struggle to get here in time and find the parking. So I don't want to let you down. <laughs> You know, but nevertheless, I don't want to just think, oh, how good I am that so many people come here. So instead, I kind of remembered, when I give a talk, who is actually giving the talk? And honestly, it's not me. I mentioned this, this often happens when I talk to monks. I make my mind very peaceful. And some of the words which come out, it's like you have something and you're just describing it as you're giving the talk. I mean, many years ago, also, I gave a talk on emptiness. And they said it was a wonderful talk. Did you do your research? Did you take notes beforehand? I said, no. In the meditation, I kind of created the idea of emptiness in front of me. And once it was there in front of me, I could describe it and actually how it really inspired people. They hadn't heard that before. 
And more importantly, I hadn't heard it before. <laughs> you may think this is weird, but it's absolutely true. Some of the things I say, I ask myself afterwards, where on earth did that come from? And some of it is very wise. Sometimes I get inspired at my own talks. <laughs> and that's not getting proud, I'm just telling the truth. Sometimes when you learn how to connect with what's right in front of you and just describe that, that's where you get some of the best Dhamma from. And at other times, the way I describe things, I call it, please excuse me, brainwashing. All the words I use, the ideas, the concepts I use, this was all conditioned, caused into me by all the teachers, the great monks, the great nuns, which I have listened to over the years. All that you've absorbed in, and goes inside, not the brain, but in the heart and the mind, and it goes through and it comes out in the English language for each one of you. And that becomes wonderful and inspiring to hear that. Little things. A good example is that Years ago, I heard this simile from my teacher, Ajahn Chah. It was a simile of the mangoes in his monastery. He once said that his monastery in the northeast of Thailand was a mango orchard. And straight away, I was a young monk at the time, there were not any mango orchards in this monastery. What's he talking about? And he said, in that mango orchard in the northeast of Thailand, all the mangoes are so many and so ripe. They're the juiciest, sweetest mangoes you've ever tasted in your life. But he said, the difficulty is, how do you get those mangoes? Because you cannot throw a stick up at the tree to get the mango to fall. You can't get a ladder to climb up the tree. You can't just shake the tree to get the mangoes to fall. He said there's only one way to get a mango from the trees planted by the Buddha. And he said that is to sit perfectly still under the mango tree. Hold out your hand and a mango will fall. Now when I just told you that story, you think Ajahn Brahma's really lost it now. <laughs> Will that ever happen, do you think? You sit under a mango tree, and you just sit perfectly, and you hold out your hand. Will a mango fall? You think that's impossible. Or as I used to say, if it does fall, it'll probably fall on your head, not in your hand. I never understood the truth of that. That was one of my teacher's most profound similes. All the things which you want in life, how do you achieve them? Have you ever been disappointed? Things which you really want, which you think should be easy to get, and you do everything which you've been told to do, and it doesn't work? Maybe Ajahn Chah's description is true. And my goodness, when you're 
especially as a monk living in the forest and meditating a lot, you find that that is true. There were no mango trees planted by the Buddha, it was a metaphor. But it was a beautiful metaphor. All these wonderful insights, truths, incredible blissful meditations, understanding of the nature of this world and everything else. Where does all that understanding and knowledge come from? What do you have to do to get wisdom, to get peace, to solve problems? Do you have to come here every week and just soak it in from Ajahn Brahm or Bamali or the nuns? Is that how wisdom arises? If it does, some of you have been coming here for years and you still come every week. I often said that when people, you know, like my meditation retreat coming up soon, which many of you book, try to book for, why is it that some of you have been coming to this meditation retreat year after year after year after year after year after year and you still can't get into deep meditation? If that happened in the world, I'd be sacked a long time ago. Like if you go to school, if you go to school and have to repeat the same class year after year after year after year, whose fault is it? Mine, the teacher. <laughs> but no, there's something else there. The reason is, is because you haven't really understood how to sit still and just open up the hand which is like kindness. Open up the door of your hand, the door of your heart. These little words have incredible powerful meaning and eventually you do get brainwashed by me as I get brainwashed by an Ajahn Chah and the words just come out. How to be still? Can you become still by working hard and doing stuff? Every time you strive for something, what has happened? You got tired. There are times, there's beautiful times when people like give up. I kind of like that word, to give up. It also means to renounce, to let go, to stop trying, to be peaceful, to have some faith and wisdom. That when you really do that properly, it is like sitting perfectly still under the mango tree. It does have to be perfectly still, that's the hard part. Sometimes when I heard that simile, I thought, okay, I'll try that. Sit still, hold up my hand, it hasn't dropped yet. Why? You have to be kind of patient. That patience is something really uh, strange in this world. It's very rare to give things time to work. Sometimes you feel you haven't got that time. But really the patience is the fastest way. The more you can be patient, the more you experience for yourself all these mangoes dropping into your hand. <laughs> it's one of the other stories which uh, fits in to this about learning how to be patient. Similar to the story of sitting under the mango tree. Sitting under the mango tree was Ajahn Chah's simile. This simile is my own simile of the donkey. I remember this simile when I 
began this talk, actually when I just sat down before the meditation, because Bill, just he gave the announcement that Ajahn Brahmali's new book is on sale in the library. And not for making money for BSWA or for him, just to help with one of the nuns' monasteries which are happening in Sydney. One of the things we love doing as monks, we're not just teaching meditation, but creating some equity in this world. And how many people in this room, is, sometimes I look at the people, more men than women, it's kind of pretty even. And that's, I'm very kind of pleased with that. It's more say proud of that. We don't make any distinction between genders or between specification, races or ages or whatever. And also we don't make any distinction between people who are tired or people who come in wheelchairs. We want to be accessible to everybody. But especially to the females. Because how many monks have you seen? How many monks can you see in front of you right now? Where are the nuns? Is that fair? You know what? <laughs> I'll go back upon donkeys in a few moments. But just one of the most inspiring moments of my monk life. And you have a, th a few things which just keep standing out again and again and again. And that was just the story of Dhammasara Nuns Monastery. For those of you who don't know, I'm not sure if I should tell you this, but there is another bhikkhuni ordination happening there on Sunday. Another one. Am I allowed to say that? And they don't want maybe too many people to go there. They get sort of squashed or something. But I always find that inspiring. All the sort of, you know, the resistance against the full ordination of bhikkhunis. I don't know if they've had a full ordination of bhikkhunis in Vietnam now. They do have it now. Bhikkhunis? Theravada? Just Mahayana. Only Mahayana. What about Theravada? They have some. Okay. But anyway, there's not that many. Why? And I was brought up, you know, in the West. And whenever there's any discrimination, you feel there's something wrong there. And so that's one of the reasons we started Bikuni Monastery here. And it's nice having ideas, but how do you make those ideas get into reality? And I still recall uh, getting a telephone call from one gentleman. He asked me on a telephone conversation, he said, I hear that you are going to build a monastery for women, for bhikkhunis. Same as monks, but you know, for the female, what the Buddha had when he uh, was teaching. And I said, yes. And he said, I would like to come to your monastery to make a donation. So he came to Bodhinyan, this was many years ago. He had only a simple car. And he came, he was just wearing, it's the summertime, so just wearing thongs and, and uh, a shorts and a 
and our t-shirt. And he said, are you really building a monastery for women? I said, yes. I was not lying to anybody. And he said, my wife has just given birth to my first child. He was a Westerner. And he said, I want to make sure that my child, who happens to be a girl, has the chance, if she wants to, to become a Buddhist nun. So I want to give a donation to your project. It's a beautiful idea, not for himself, just so that his children, if they ever want to become bhikkhunis, they have the chance of doing it. And that's when he handed over a check, they're using checks in those days, of a quarter of a million Aussie dollars, 250,000. I don't usually shake. <laughs> but that was just inspiring. That just those moments of inspiration and joy, which happen by themselves, that really sort of gives me this beautiful inspiration in this world. Just how many beautiful acts of kindness and generosity and this wonderful love to make things up happen for those people who really want it. It's not trying to force people into doing anything, but encouraging them. When that actually happens, it's gorgeous. So anyhow, uh, the reason I was saying about the donkeys was that not just Ajahn Bamali writing little books to support a nun's monastery over in Sydney, but also uh, Venerable Sunyo writing little books. He's now an author. And that always reminded me of that story of a Zen monk. When I was a young monk in, no, not a young monk, a young Buddhist in London. I wasn't a monk yet, but this Zen monk came and in his talk he gave a warning. His warning was, well first of all, you know, he couldn't speak English very well, but nevertheless, we asked him a question. And the question was, what do you think of Buddhism in UK? And I think this was asked about 1972. And he said, he couldn't speak English fluently, but he could say a few words. What he said was, Buddhism in UK, books, 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 too many, too many, too many, dustbin, dustbin, dustbin. <laughs> and that was so articulate, you couldn't have said it more eloquently than that, <laughs> just, <laughs> just knowing three words. <laughs> but he also said that, uh, through the translator, that anyone who writes a book, for each book, you have to spend the next seven births, after you die, as a donkey. <laughs> so you know how many books I've written? At least I'll have some good friends with me <laughs> in my next life. Not just donkey Ajahn Brah, but donkey Bamali and donkey Sunya. <laughs> Of course, that's not a truth. Don't quote me on that. 
but that's what he actually said. It was just really encouraging you not just to rely on the words, but use the books like the maps and go to the territory and find out how those maps actually work. You have the recipe in the recipe book. Don't just read the recipe, but actually take the food. That's really important. I'll go back to the donkey in a minute. But I recommended one of the books to a visitor from the US today, The Good, Bad, Who Knows. And the last story in that book, very rarely do I present it here. It was a story of the professor of philosophy. Are there any professors here this evening? Are there? Phew, I won't get sued. <laughs> this professor, he heard that there was a new five-star restaurant opening up in town. He liked his food, so he decided he would go and visit. But unfortunately, this five-star restaurant, you can't just go in there like a McDonald's. You have to make a reservation. So he rang up. He had to wait almost two months to get a reservation. That's how popular it was. So eventually, he made the reservation. And when the time came to go to the restaurant, he had to dress up properly, just not in just uh, thongs or shirts, you know, with the proper shoes and ties and stuff. No one ever wears that here. <laughs> if you are, you're probably the funeral director. <laughs> no, one, no one else was. Anyway, we did a funeral here last Monday. But any of the... Um, so he had to dress up well and he went to see the... the what they call it? The maitre d', I think it's called. I haven't been to a, such a restaurant in years. I think 50 years more than that. But anyway, he went there and they checked his name. Yes, you have a reservation. So I took him to the table where he was going to have his dinner. A beautiful mahogany table with chairs with such incredible upholstery. And when they gave him the, the menu, even the menu, it was not just on a piece of paper. It was on this thick yellow card with almost embroidery on the outside. And all this amazing food which they were offering that evening. Very expensive. So he said thank you to the waiter. And he looked at the menu. And then the professor of philosophy ate the menu. <laughs> put in his mouth and ate it. And after he finished chewing it and eating it all, he went up and paid his bill and left. <laughs> That's the waiter who didn't know the difference between the menu and the food. How many people are like that? <laughs> they know all the theory. They know what you should do. Why? They don't do anything. So anyway, this is a very smart donkey story. This was a Buddhist donkey. I reckon he must have come here many times. Or he actually grazed on the grass in front of a meditation retreat center somewhere. Because this donkey knew exactly how to live 
her life. I say this story often, but I enjoy it. And sometimes even the jokes which I tell, I really, really enjoy. I know that somebody else groans, but I don't care. I'm just being selfish, I suppose. <laughs> but anyway, the donkey. Usually, if you ever watch you know, people tie a donkey to a cart in Asia, will that donkey pull the cart? No way. Even if you get a stick up and hit the donkey on the backside, will the donkey pull the cart? No. I even remember as a kid being told that being as stubborn as a donkey, that meant you were really stubborn. But instead of hitting the donkey with a stick, that's not a good Buddhist thing to do, you tie the stick to the donkey's neck. So the front of the stick is maybe two foot in front of the donkey's head. On the end of the stick, you put a string. On the end of the string, you put a carrot. I do change this story depending upon what country I'm teaching in. If I had to say this in England, I say you put like a pork pie. <laughs> I don't know. If it's in uh, Malaysia, I say a piece of durian. <laughs> well, I don't know what else to say. Or a piece of mango. Do you like mangoes? Many people do. I'll put a piece of mango there. But anyway, you see the piece of durian right in front of you. What do you do? You go, go towards it. But when the donkey goes towards the piece of durian, the stick moves, the string moves, and the durian moves. It's always about two foot in front of your mouth. Does that seem similar to life? You're trying to save up enough money to retire. I'm trying to train up enough monks who are junior to me so I can retire. It's kind of working, but it's so slow. <laughs> or you try and, I don't know what else you do, to graduate or to finish your career so you have enough money saved in the bank, you never need to do anything ever again. Sometimes success, honours, you're about to become a GP and it's almost right there in front of you and you still have more training to do, goodness. Why is the carrot or the piece of durian always close enough, you can see it, you can smell it, you can almost like taste it but it's always in front of you and you keep on going to what you need in life, the perfect relationship, you know, with another partner. You know, the perfect health in your body. Sometimes you get so close to good health, but then you get COVID or something else knocks you out for a while. Why is life like that? And how is it solved? If you really come here a lot, you know how to solve this problem so easily. Just like Ajahn Chah said, sit perfectly still, the mango falls. So what does the donkey do? It runs like hell after that durian. As fast as it can possibly go. Really top speed. Like many of you do in your life. 
whatever you're trying to achieve in life. You really put full effort into it. Lots of people do that, but that's not the full story. What the donkey does next is the key. The donkey stops. Totally puts on the brakes and stops perfectly still. What does a piece of durian do? Swings away. And that happens to you sometimes. You come to a place like this, you say, oh, I understand now, you let go, you stop running around, you take a bit of a break, then what happens? You think, no, I should be doing something. Because that durian goes further away than it's ever been before. If you don't like durian, you're very happy. It doesn't smell so bad now. <laughs> But for people who really like it, this is what you want, it swings four foot away, and then what happens? It starts swinging back. And you've never seen that before in your life. Now what you really want in life is coming towards you. And this is the second thing people always have to remember. Patience. Don't think it's so close. Now you can go and grab it. Patience. After a while, you're coming here. Just come here for once. It doesn't work that much. Maybe interesting. Maybe remember the jokes, but it doesn't really get deep inside. Brainwashing takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, you see that piece of joy coming closer and closer to you, and it's two foot in front of your mouth. It's usual position. But now that during is coming top speed towards you. You've never seen it come so fast in your direction. And then it comes so close to your mouth, you have to remember the next thing. I told you this at the beginning. In meditation, you have to have the kindness, not just mindfulness. The kindness is so important. So as that during is coming right in front of the donkey's mouth. The donkey has to remember kindness. He has to look at that Jurian and think, Jurian, the door of my mouth is open to you. <laughs> Otherwise it bounces off the donkey's teeth. Next time you see a donkey, have a look how big its teeth is, or teeth are. You get so close, but the last minute you forget the beautiful kindness. You sit perfectly still, open up your hand, open up the doors of your heart, mangoes fall in, and you catch them. And absolutely no effort. That's really weird. And I've been teaching like this for years and years and years and years, and people say, imagine you have to do some effort. You know, no, no pain, no gain. Oh, crikey. You want to follow that path, this path is not the place for you. Go and just sit on top of a, a mountain in a freezing cold. You know, just go and hurt yourself. This is the very kind path, and a very wise path. And that's how cat, uh, donkeys catch carrots. That's how you find beautiful truth in life. Why is it that people find it difficult to do nothing. I mean, what could be easier than just sitting here, closing your eyes and meditating? 
It's not something you do, it's what happens when you don't do anything. You know, you've heard me say many times, relax to the max. That is not just a slogan, that is a truth. That is a great meditation method. Other times, I explain it by what I heard, what I read from the book by Leo Tolstoy. You know, the Emperor's Three Questions and turn that into a, a beautiful meditation path. What's the most important time? It's an obvious one, it has to be now. Why is it that when now is the most important time, too many people are worried about what they're going to have to do next? That causes restless mind. Or the past. Why can't we just really understand that now is the only time you have? It is the most important time you ever have in your life. Right in this moment. How do you feel now? What's happening right now? Not where you're going to go to afterwards, not where you came from, but right in this very moment. It's the most important time, especially when you're meditating. You don't have to worry about what happened before, you know, when you started meditation. Any sort of difficulties, you can drop that straight away. And I think I've mentioned many times, that's what I did when I was a student doing final exams. To drop the morning exam, to drop the future exam. Just rest in this moment, I needed rest. That's how I did so well in the uh, exams in theoretical physics, in quantum theory, astrophysics of the galaxy, special relativity, all the easy stuff. <laughs> you didn't worry. So you're in this moment, not wanting anything in the whole world, and your mind was working at full potential. So this is really important for success in life. And even like insights and understandings. There's this one lady, I think many of you may remember her, she died quite a few years ago. But she had this, I would call a terrible job. When I first heard what she had to do in the social services department, she was the one who had to look at these very difficult cases of you know, child abuse. It's even difficult really hard to read them. And she had to decide, make the final decision, whether that child should be removed from her parents or one of their parents as an act of safety to kind of protect that child. Can you imagine how that must feel? You know, you have to be almost like a judge to a poor kid who wasn't being fed by their parent or being abused by them and take them away. And she said the only way she dealt with such stress was actually for in her meditation. She came on one of the retreats which I gave in, we, in that time before Jarnagrove was built, we held retreats in the Redemptorist Monastery Retreat Center in North Perth. Like many people meditating, she came really late she had to try and finish off all the unfinished work. And when she came, 
she told me that she had many problems she hadn't actually finished with yet. You know, work which she hadn't tied up, but she was confident enough just to let it all go, to relax to the max, be peaceful, be still. And she understood how even the answers to worldly problems, difficult problems, which would affect the happiness of so many people in that family, how the solutions didn't need to be chased. That when she was still, those pieces of joy would come to her. And I remember her coming in the middle of the retreat, after about three or four days, in her interview, and she told me that in one of the meditations earlier that day, she wasn't thinking about the problems, but the solutions just came to her. Just, and these were, she said, amazing solutions. I don't know where these came from. Innovative and highly effective. And I told her, please, you know, write them down, which she did. But don't think about them now, you're still on retreat. And so she did that too, continued to retreat. And when she went back to work, that's when she enacted those solutions which just came to her. And they were very, very, very effective. The innovation was so powerful. That's one of the reasons why, yes, it gives you great insights into the nature of your body and mind, but also solves almost insoluble problems in your life or in your job. You really do find out how to innovate and find Solutions to problems which you can't think solutions for, they literally come to you. Just like the carrots or the durians come when you meditate. And I love that idea because as a senior monk, you know, sometimes I take responsibility for the Buddhist society of Western Australia. You know, because, you know, basically I was one of the first monks here. And also, I take that responsibility seriously. But if I have a decision to make, if there's any problems, yeah, they may ask the committee, but then I'm on the committee, and eventually I'm the one <laughs> who's left with the problem at the end. I don't mind that. Because sometimes what you do, you meditate deeply. And solutions just arise. And we enact those solutions. I found out they've been so wonderfully effective. You know, all the things you see here. And the way that we've actually kept so much harmony between the different Buddhist groups who support this place. I don't think there's any other place like this. You know, in Australia, even in the Buddhist world, you get people from so many different backgrounds. From so many different races, nationalities, gender, LGBTQIA+. Everyone is welcome. Please, I apologize if I missed out one letter. But you know, you try your very best. And that innovation is what makes this a wise, compassionate society. And I take no credit for it. I don't take any credit for it because I too was brainwashed. Brainwashed by all the teachers which I knew for so many years. And any time anybody had any problems, and I went to ask any of these very senior monks, 
they'd always say, what is the most compassionate option? The kindest. I always make sure I consider that. Sometimes, some of the monks, sometimes they say, I'm too soft. I should be more strict. But it's a waste of time, because I can't do that. Strictness creates fear, and fear hides the truth. People aren't being respected when they're afraid of you. How many of you are afraid of me? Honestly. <laughs> are any monks afraid of me, to be honest? <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Monks make mistakes. What do I do when they do make a mistake? You're kind to them. It's something they don't expect. They're kind. You know where I learned that first of all? When I was again a student, uh, I decided basically to please my mother to get a, a proper job after leaving university. So I became a school teacher for one year. It was actually to show that you know I could always go back to a proper job, you know, if it didn't work out as being a monk. But I'm very happy to have done that. I learned a lot about educational psychology and about just how some of the fear and punishment in schools was so counterproductive. You know, I was never punished when I was in school. The only reason was because I was too smart to get caught. <laughs> and I remember that. Why is it that speed cameras are often not really effective? Because you can soon learn where all the speed cameras are located. You slow down there and speed up after you pass one. Is that really effective? All you're learning how to do is to be deceitful. And sometimes we complain about our politicians or leaders for being deceitful. This is the society which we grow up with rewards deceit. If you can get away with it, good on ya. I don't agree with that at all. I always like the idea of honesty and how we can encourage more honesty in this world. How we encourage more honesty is to make sure that no one ever gets punished for telling the truth. If what they say is true, you may not agree with what they've done, but don't punish them. Say, please, that really hurt, but don't ever do it again. If the punishment is there, who will tell the truth? This was, I read this as a joke many years ago. A guy was on trial in the United States. If he was convicted or found guilty, he would be executed. He had capital punishment. And when he was being examined by the the prosecutors, the judge interrupted him and said, look, 
You know, what you said first is not what you said last. You know, you're lying, that's perjury. Don't you know that perjury is a very serious offence, you know, in the United States? He said, yes, I know it's very important, but the penalties for perjury are much less than if I tell the truth. <laughs> he may be executed. So that's one of the reasons why people lie, because it's in their interest to lie. And telling the truth. Wouldn't it be wonderful, I think, if a politician, person who has responsibility in our government, our governments, if they told the truth, they would never be punished. Imagine what would come out. Imagine in marriages, if the two partners would absolutely tell the truth. And you could say to them, you know, my partner, if you tell the truth, I will never punish you. I may not agree with you, it may hurt me, but please I need to know. And if that happened, you know where this came from? Was when one of the people here, a young Sri Lankan girl, maybe she was at university, she came to see me one Saturday morning. I'm in big trouble, Ajahn Brahm, can you help? I asked, what is it? She said, I'm pregnant with her boyfriend. And the first thing I said, have you told your mum and dad yet? She said, no, they'll kill me. That's what I've come to see you for. Can you please tell my mum and dad? <laughs> I'm glad you laughed there because that's what I did. It's kind of cute. And of course I told her mum and dad, I said, look, she made a mistake. Please don't punish her for making a mistake. Now she needs your help more than ever. She's your daughter. And that uncovered why people break precepts, why people feel they need to lie. Because it's in their interest, they get benefit from it. And please, if that's your family, this is your kids, your partner in life, please let them know. Anything you say, as long as it's honest, you will never be punished. I will never scold you, shout at you. It's important you can trust this one person who understands that no one is perfect, but we're good enough to be honest. Once that's there, people have wonderful relationships and you're there as a good parent and your children will never lie to you. They need your help. Your son has got involved with drugs or something. They need your help desperately. So don't sort of scare them away with scolding them. Just like my father said to me, son, whatever you do in your life, However you turn out, the door of my heart is always open to you. It's a beautiful thing to say, and it means that unconditional love. So you can listen to what they say, and still have that love there. Whatever problem there is, it can be solved, if we start with that honesty. Okay, I've rambled on a bit from just sitting down there, 
and just opening the door of your heart or just opening up your hand and man goes for. But it is so true. Simple but highly effective. So thank you all for listening. Excellent. Now we have the opportunity for questions. Is there any question from the audience here, first of all? If you need to go, please, there's no sort of time when people have to stay to. The doors are never locked. I kind of like that idea. The sense of freedom. People need to go to the toilet, they go to the toilet. If you miss anything, it's all recorded. Okay, we've got some questions here from the internet, from overseas. Here we go. Oh, we've got a first question from Latvia and from the Maldives. Anyway, first of all, from Latvia. I'm suffering from disbelief of my dearest spouse that I want to live and be with him. Often facing his rejection when expressing my love and care. How to cope with this? Is when you express your love and care, even if he rejects it, keep on giving it, wear him down. <laughs> That's a quote from the great Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> He said, some cabinet ministers I wear down, some other ministers I beat down, some other ministers I grind down. <laughs> but usually that in a good way. If you persist, it's amazing just how, you know, a dear spouse, you can beat them down and teach them what love is. I've told this story, it's not one which I encourage, but one which inspired me. This woman who came here uh, to our center, not because she was a Buddhist or interested in meditation, it was two hours when she felt safe, out of reach of her husband's beating her. A very bad case of domestic abuse, many years ago. And she never told anyone about it, except after seven years, she said. She's one of the regulars, sitting in the back, but never talking to us. And she said, it took me seven years to turn around my husband. Every time he did something which I hated, I would just forgive him. Every time, that's not good enough. Every time he did something which I liked, which was civilized, I would go over the top, hugging him and kissing him and say, thank you, darling. She really rewarded positive conduct and forgave bad conduct. And when she said to me, seven years it took, but now her husband is this beautiful partner in life. And she came and basically showed him off to me and even came down to Bodhinyana Monastery, this man. And this lady, she's like a hero, like a, like a wonder woman. She's an amazing lady. So she'd actually just saved her marriage. She had a couple of kids and also this incredible, beautiful husband. And she'd made him like that. That's just really one of the most wonderful women I've ever seen.
So don't give up. If you want to live and be with him, if he f gives you rejection, you keep giving back kindness. When he does anything which you really appreciate, go over the top with hugs and kisses. And the next one, I don't know if it's from uh, Vietnam, but it's from Travis Dale Ng. Ajahn Bam, how do I make peace with my past heedless actions and go back to the Buddhist path? Oh, that's very easy. Any bad stuff you've done in the past, we always call that the dung which you dig into your garden. You know that book which I wrote, Another Cause for Seven Lifetimes as a Donkey? The Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? That was actually printed over in the United States. I had a big argument with the publishers, Wisdom Publications. Why can't you call that Who Ordered This this truckload of shit instead of dung. <laughs> but apparently that's not allowed. People say that in the streets, but you can't put it in the book. So anyway, <laughs> for that whole story, it's like life. You're here in this temple tonight. When you go home, imagine Imagine, you go home and in front of your house or your apartment, there's this huge truckload of stinky stuff has been dumped there. And number one, you didn't order it. You can't say, oh, this is my karma. You can't understand why it's been dumped in your house, in front of your house. Number two, no one saw it coming, so you can't ring up somebody and get it removed. You're stuck with it. Oh my goodness, does it stink. Does that ring any bells with your life? Some of the problems you've faced in life, you didn't deserve it. You didn't order it. No one saw it. You can't ring up somebody and just magic it all away. You're stuck with it. So what do you do? You get out the wheelbarrow and spade and you shovel it into the wheelbarrow and dig it into your garden in the back. Yeah, that takes a lot of work. Maybe years to dig it all in. What happens after seven years of digging it in like that lady I was talking about? My goodness, your garden is phenomenal. Your garden has got so much fruit and vegetables. You've got so much and it's the most delicious, fragrant fruit which you've ever seen. And you share it with all your friends and even your monks as well. Even I benefit from it. I should do because I tell the story. <laughs> and that's how to deal with the difficulties. How to make peace with my past Dig it in and make the most beautiful flowers, even the flowers you can come and put on the shrine, the most fragrant and delicious blooms you've ever seen. Where did it all come from? All the shit which you got in life. All the dung, all the rotten stuff which people don't know how to use. Okay. From Upal, I'm Upal living in the Maldives. I gave up smoking 11 years ago. 
but again started two weeks ago. I want to stop it. It's a very difficult thing to give up. Please help me. This is common with addictions. It's hard to give up. And many people, they give up even for 11 years and they take it up again. You've given it up once, so give it up again. Don't ever feel a failure. Because when people think, I've done 11 years now, stupid me. You start calling yourself stupid me, I'm hopeless. Which means you don't have enough confidence or feeling of self-worth to give it up again. Don't take failure anywhere in your life as a reason not to keep trying to be good and to be better. Don't think you failed once. You gave it up once. So give it up again. You can do it. It's just like that thing I say in relationships. When your partner lets you down, they say, well, how many times should I forgive him? And the answer is, always one more time. I kind of like that. In other words, no limit. There should be no limit to kindness and to understand that sometimes people do make mistakes. Sometimes I make mistakes. I like to be forgiven one more time, please. <laughs> and after a while that means you have enough confidence and the kindness of others encourages you to be better. So, Upo in the Mordais You've given it up before, so give it up again. Always one more time. Lastly, Shobi 13. I am severely overweight and it causes me much suffering. I struggle to lose weight. Do you have any advice? Yes, get yourself a t-shirt. I saw this t-shirt in a photograph and on the outside it was written, I overcame anorexia. <laughs> I kind of like that because instead of thinking it's something terribly bad, you know, just give yourself the benefit of the doubt, at least you're not anorexic. People have been telling me that I've lost weight in the last month or two. <laughs> oh, come on, give me some encouragement. But you know, when I first started putting on weight, that's what I did. I looked in the dictionary because I heard about anorexia. You know, its definition in the dictionary is you look in the mirror and you think you're fat. That's the definition of anorexia. So it's not being fat, it must be anorexia. <laughs> okay, I got all these excuses. You know, sometimes in meditation, this is actually true. Sometimes in meditation, I've felt this myself and I've heard this other people have the same experience. You get very still and sometimes it's like you feel you know, weird stuff happening in your body. Your body tends to kind of disappear and sometimes your body feels like it's expanding to fill the whole universe. And I reckon that's what happened with me. I was just expanding and someone disturbed me during my meditation. If they just let me be, I could have come back again, but I got stuck like this. 
<laughs> I got some other great excuses as well, but that's enough. So you're severely overweight. It caused me much suffering. First of all, don't take that suffering personally. Now your mind can be very, very pure. Have you ever seen all these Buddhas, the Buddha statues with this really fat Buddha? Why did they have such a fat Buddha in those days? I often ask that question. One of the reasons was because that's one of the other reasons why people put on weight, because they don't worry. So the person who's severely overweight, find something more to worry about. And then you lose a lot of weight. Is that a good idea? No. Just be your size. And many people had those fat Buddhas on their shrine. It shows them, it doesn't matter how you look, it's what's inside, the quality of your heart inside is the most important. And many of the very fat monks, Ajahn Chah was fat. Have you seen photographs of him? He was very fat. I'm just following in the lineage of my teacher, that's all. <laughs> so anyhow, is there any questions from the... F okay, one here, okay. Yeah, go on. The unnecessary, or sorry, how do you deal with the unnecessary suffering that you might cause other people? So, my question, I guess, to add context is, when you do a job and you try your best at your job, and you're try and you're being paid money, and you're being, you know, given this authority, and you ask, say, this other person, like, you know, I'm doing my best, I'm doing all this stuff, but even then they still have complaints or they're doing stuff and you're causing unnecessary suffering and you try and do your best and care for them and how do you deal with that? That's okay, a that's a good question. But there's something which I learned a long time ago. And I went to all these human resources conferences, they call them HR conferences. You shouldn't really like look at people like human resources, but that's what they call it. And that's what I taught what we call the sandwich method. The sandwich method is a very beautiful way if you're in a boss somewhere and how to point out faults in another person and how you don't hurt them when you also get good results. What you do first of all, a sandwich has got say the bread at the top or say the bread at the bottom, the bread at the bottom. So you say something nice to that person who's working for you. I'm really inspired by just how you always come well dressed and uh, well uh, presented, and you're always on time. It's an amazing thing to see that these days. I really admire you for being able to do that. Give the praise first of all. Because when you praise someone, it's like their ears open up. And the more they praise, the more their ears and the pathways into their brain open up, because they like hearing praise. And once their ears have opened up enough, then you put the filling in the sandwich. That's where you tell them, but, you know, your typing is just really bad. You spend too much time just talking with others rather than doing the work. So you have to point it out, you know, what their faults are. And then, but, you know, you're just so smart and wise. I'm sure we can fix up that, no trouble at all later on. 
you put the other piece of bread on the top. It's called a sandwich. Praise to get them to trust you and respect you. And then you put the filling in. And then you finish off with the praise at the end. How many times has any one of you been criticized? You think, I work so hard for this company. They don't appreciate me. They're not listening to you anymore. Give the, the praise, and then the criticism, and then the praise at the end. Sandwich. That was a very good question you asked. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for answering the question. But also, you do ask too many questions. But you're still a very wonderful person, so thank you. <laughs> That's just an example of a sandwich. So you don't ask too many questions, but that's like sandwich example. <laughs> okay. So again, thank you all for listening. We can now uh, just pay respects to the Buddha, and then we can actually just either go back home or just stay around to ask some more questions personally. Venerable monks, did you understand that? Didn't understand it. <laughs> That reminded me when I used to listen to Ajahn Chah at the beginning. Sometimes Ajahn Chah could sit there and he would talk for hours and hours and hours and I couldn't understand a word. But that made me more uh, try to learn English, well, try to learn uh, the Northeastern dialect more quickly. So anyway, thank you for listening anyway. Very good. Thank you for coming and staying up late. Thank you also for coming. Excellent. <laughs>